Good morning. How are you? You can get your Bibles out, open to 1 Kings 17. It's been a long time since I didn't say open to the Gospel of John, hadn't it? Now, we have a lot to be grateful for. I was thinking this week that uh, about 60 of you, 60 of you, were baptized during the preaching through the Gospel of John. It's a lot to be grateful for. God has been so good to us, and we're so grateful. So now we turn our attention to the life of Elijah. And uh, this is a sermon series that is born out of a conversation that began last year in my D group, actually. And when we read through the story of Elijah... We just began to, God just began to work in, amongst that small group of men, and we started talking about things, and one thing led to another, and this uh, began to carry over week, over week, over week, and we still are talking about the things that God show, uh, showed us from these passages, and so I'm very um, much looking forward to sharing this with you, and it should be a wonderful time together. So 1 Kings 17 or page 410 in that pew Bible in front of you. You can find it there. We're going to do something a little bit different. I have preached through the life of Elijah before. You can find that on our website. Those, I think the sermon series is called Encounter. And I preached exegetically through all of the passages concerning Elijah. This will be a little bit different take on Elijah, And this morning we'll jump in and sort of set the foundation for where we'll be going together. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we study. Father, we have much to be thankful for. God, so much to be grateful for all that you have done and are doing. And Lord, will continue to do among us as your people. We're so grateful and so thankful. And Lord... Help us to understand this morning that it's as if we're standing on the shore and we're peering out over the ocean of your holiness. We're thinking that we understand what this ocean is and the power that it harnesses. But Lord, in your plan and purposes, we come to see that you're so much more than just what's on the surface. And it's not until we step off the shore and begin to wade into the reality of who you are through the mighty works of your hand in our lives, God, that we understand the vastness of your glory and holiness. And so we thank you, Lord. For the word, we thank you for its perfection and inerrancy. We thank you for the treasure that it is and the work that it accomplishes within us. And so this morning we pray for ears to hear, hearts to receive, that we might glorify you in the hearing and understanding of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was... April 19th, 2014, Fresno, 
California. You can, when you get home today, look this up on your smartphone or your computer and watch the video of Roberta Francis's house bursting into flames. A passerby stopped and began to video the whole incident on their phone as flames are just shooting out of the roof of her house and there's chaos and she comes running out with her little grandson and as people are sort of mulling around trying to figure out what to do, uh, she's screaming, someone's still in the house, someone's still in the house, my father is still in the house, my father is still in the house and you see these men running out, they sort of run in to check and they're running out just trying to get away, there's an explosion that happens and uh, some stuff shoots up out of the roof. And, and then out of nowhere, out of this plume of smoke, comes this unknown bystander carrying this elderly man who still had the oxygen tubes hooked to his face, carrying him to safety. He sets the man down and people begin to attend to him. And then all of this is captured on video, he just sort of wanders away. Some man in a Dodgers baseball cap who rushes into a burning house when everyone else is running the other way and rescues a man who was doomed to certain death. Now I tell you that story about that fire because it will help you Prepare yourself for another story about another fire. You see, when we come to 1 Kings 17, the people of God have been on fire for a long time. In fact, for over a hundred years, they have been burning. And it's been a terrible situation. After the death of Solomon, you remember that... Uh, the people of God had three kings, Saul, David, and then Solomon. Once Solomon uh, completes his temple, he passes away, and one of his sons, Rehoboam, ascends to the throne. And it's at that time that the nation breaks into civil war and ends up splitting into two distinct people groups. And if you're Reading in the Old Testament, a lot of people get confused about this, confused about the fact that sometimes the Bible's talking about Israel and sometimes it's talking about Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And so once this civil war breaks out because of Rehoboam's disobedience, he put the people through hard labor, high taxes, uh, all of that's recorded in the 12th chapter of 1 Kings. The nation splits through much turmoil and pain. And then Israel, which is where we will focus through this study, uh, is led by Rehoboam's brother, Jeroboam. Now, he takes over the northern kingdom. I'm going to go through this quickly, but I just want you to get a picture of what's going on amongst the people of God. In 1 Kings 13, the Bible says that Jeroboam didn't, he did not turn from his evil way, 
But again, he made priests from every class of people. Notice what's happening here. He makes priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. That can't be good. And then after Jeroboam, his son Nadab becomes king. The Bible says of Nadab in 1 Kings 15, 26, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father. Nadab only ruled for two years before he was murdered by Basha. Basha becomes king. The Bible says of him in 1 Kings 15, 34, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam in the same way. The, the, the sin and the disobedience and the wickedness just continues to grow and grow. And then his son, Basha's son, Elah, becomes king. He rules two years before he's assassinated, this time by one of his servants named Zimri. After he's assassinated, Zimri takes over, but that only lasts for about a week. The people are so distraught and upset that they start to call out for Omri, who is the commander of the army, to siege the, the palace and take over. And so Omri does so. His men attack. Zimri then commits suicide. Omri becomes king. The Bible says in 1 Kings 16, 25, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. And just when it seemed like it couldn't possibly get any worse, it did. Omri, after 50 years of oppression and unbelievable wickedness, turns the keys to the people of God over to none other than Ahab. The Bible says of Ahab in 1 Kings 16 that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than those who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. He thought that the sins of his predecessors were nothing. They were trivial. You'd seen nothing yet. That he took as his wife the notorious Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a wooden image. Look at what the Bible says. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now you notice... If you go back today and you want to read through all these horrible kings, you'll notice that there's something very interesting that stands out about Ahab. All the other kings, you have information about their lineage. You have information about their rulership and their wickedness. But nothing is said of their family until you get to Ahab. The only king that the Bible mentions his wife's name is Ahab, specifically because her name is synonymous with wickedness. And she brought her foreign gods from uh, Phoenicia of the Sidonians. She brought her foreign gods into Israel, and Ahab ushered a level of idolatry into the people of God unlike any that had ever been seen before. The worship of Baal, which is really a generic name for a multitude of gods. Baal is a false god. It's a god of fertility. 
Uh, Baal is a male. Asherah is the female counterpart. I taught on this when we were in the Joshua series not long ago. You can go back and listen to all of the specifics about the horrific nature of Baal worship. But suffice it to say that the worship of Baal was believed to uh, produce the fertility of the ground or the harvest. And it was dependent upon the sexual relationship that existed between Baal and Asherah. And so the way that the people would encourage uh, a more active relationship between these two false gods would be to go to the temple, whether male or female, there were both male and female temple prostitutes and engage in immorality. It has been said in the past that the steel of a person's character is forged on the anvil of one's time. Meaning, the darker the times, the more brightly may shine the one who stands against it. Well, here we have rampant immorality, murder, sexual immorality, uh, idolatry. All of this has become the norm. We're not talking about the nations of the world. We're not talking about the Canaanites. We're talking about God's people. And it's in the midst of this situation that we see Elijah come into the picture. Now, all of this begins right after the completion of the temple. And I started thinking about how horrible things had gotten and how swiftly it had happened. And I, I went back and looked and found that it was only 30 years. It was only 30 years after Solomon that all of this chaos began to ensue. 30 years after the dedication of the temple. And if you recall, back in 1 Kings chapter 8, you can read it. When the temple was dedicated, the glory of the Lord descended upon it like a cloud. So these people had witnessed, literally witnessed firsthand the glory of God descending upon the temple of God. And 30 years later, they began down a path that would lead to untold horror. So there's a principle for us that we should acknowledge before we go any further. If we do not see him in our past, we will fail to factor him into our future. We have to constantly remember the faithfulness of God in the rearview mirror. It's the remembrance of God's faithfulness in all the things that he's done. It's the anchor points in our life where we've seen the glory and power of God move that will cause us to factor him into our future. And apart from that, if we blind ourselves to the goodness of God and all that he's done around us, then our future can be filled with peril. And so enter Elijah. Elijah, like no other prophet, the prophet of all prophets, he's like an ordinary man in a Dodger's ball cap comes walking out of a burning building carrying this helpless man. 
That's exactly how Elijah comes on the scene. James says about Elijah in his New Testament book as he's encouraging Christians to pray in the midst of terrible crisis. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What the Bible wants us to know about Elijah is is that he's a man just like me, just like you. He's a person just like us. He has the same needs. He has the same problems, same weaknesses as we do. That he ends up being the great prophet who appears on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He's the great prophet to whom the Jews still today will leave the door open or an empty chair at the table for the second coming of the great Elijah. But he didn't start out that way. He was just an ordinary person who in so many ways to me is just standing on the shore of God's ocean. I think Elijah thought he had God figured out. He was a prophet. He thought he knew what prophets do and the way prophets work. But boy, was he in for a shocker. Elijah was broken, just like we are. He was desperately in need of God's strength, just like we are. That's why it's you, me, and Elijah. You see, there's things in this series that we're going to find out that we need to abandon. Just like Elijah had to abandon. Just like you have to abandon and I have to abandon. And so look at how he comes rushing out of a burning building. Look in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. Now let's just think for a second. Here's no introduction. Here's this person out of nowhere. All we know is that he's from Tishba, that he's of the people of the Gileadites. He's A prophet that just shows up. Up until this point, we don't know where he came from. He's going to go before Ahab in the palace. He's going to tell Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no no dew or no rain these years except at my word. I think to myself, how did he get to Ahab? What, What was he doing before this? Did he just walk into the palace? Nobody just walks in and has an audience with Ahab. This wasn't exactly the most friendly fellow in the world. Certainly, if you were a prophet of God, we'll find out later, a couple chapters later, that Ahab and Jezebel have been systematically killing all the prophets of God one by one by one by one. So he was already a wanted man. He was already, uh, you know, a little under the gun, and yet he just walks into the palace out of nowhere, this Tishbite, this person from some little community, this nowhere person from a nowhere 
city. And it makes me think about us. It makes me think about how, you know, all of us fit into one category or the other. All of us are either sent or we need someone sent to us. Right? All of us. Every person on earth is in one of those two categories. See, either you don't know God and you're in a burning building with no ability to save yourself or you do know God and you've been commissioned to run into burning buildings and save people who can't save themselves. Right? One or the other. It's either A or B. There's no in the middle. And notice... The only details we're given are not about the messenger, but about the message. I mean, it's just Elijah the Tishbite. But then the message, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or no rain these years except at my word. Now, when he comes in, the Bible doesn't say that there's any introduction. I'm assuming Ahab knows who he is, or at least we'll find out who he is. And when he asks What's your name? And he says, Elijah. Well, it's not going to go good because the name Elijah means my God is Yahweh. So you can imagine what Jezebel, the look on her face as he says the name Elijah. Here they are serving the false gods of fertility, committing all sorts of acts of immorality in order to produce a harvest And notice how God hits them. There'll be no rain. Everything in the land is going to die. All of your hopes for fertility and harvest are going to be futile. Because there's no rain. There's not going to be any rain. A drought. What strikes me when I read this first verse is, nor rain these years. You know how that goes? Like we don't have rain around here, which that hasn't happened in a while, but we don't have rain around here for a little bit of time. Maybe it'll be, oh, a week. If it gets to two weeks, then I'll hear you talking about it. People will be saying, oh, we need some rain. Oh, we need some rain, right? What if it goes a month? Oh, I got to go home and water my yard. We're talking years, folks. There is no yard. Years. No rain for years. Think of the severity of the consequences of, of what this means. But Elisha stands before the most powerful man, the most wicked, evil man, certainly the one who would hate him and have the power to eliminate him more than anybody else on earth. And he delivers the message from God. Look at verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Now, my first thought is, hide? Hold up. Why are we hiding? First of all, you send me straight into Ahab. Like I didn't send him a telegram. I didn't send him a message through somebody. I go straight into the palace, look him dead in the face, tell him it's not going to rain for years. Got that, partner? Years. 
Then the Lord says, now go hide. I'm sure that Elijah's thinking, I'm a prophet. Now I finally get to activate. I'm going to go before Ahab. I'm going to tell him it's not going to rain. And then I'm going to march up and down all the streets with a megaphone going, no rain, fool. Stop worshiping Baal. Well, I mean, what's he got to fear? He just stood in front of Ahab. So he's thinking, God's going to protect me. I don't have to worry about anything. And then the very next command is go hide. Go hide. Now, why would God send Elijah to hide? Well, because Elijah wasn't yet what God wanted him to be. There was still work for God to do. You notice that we're introduced to Elijah in verse 1. It's Elijah the Tishbite, right? That's all we know. Now, glance across the page to verse 24. We'll get there next week, but when you get to verse 24, look at what it says. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God. You see, we're introduced to Elijah the Tishbite, but then 23 verses later, it's Elijah the man of God. Now, what happens in between verse 1 and verse 24? Well... Elijah goes to boot camp at Cherith. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You see, God wants to teach us some principles. First of all, he wants to teach us that we can't give away publicly what we have not experienced privately. You can't give away publicly what you have not experienced privately. God has work to do in Elijah, and he sent him to Ahab. He... Elijah obeyed God, went before Ahab, gave Ahab the message, but now there's work that needs to be done in Elijah in order to prepare him for the next phase of his mission. See, the Bible says in verse 4, and it will be, this is the Lord speaking to Elijah. Now, do I wish that I could see his face when God says these words to him? And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Okay, wait a minute. So first of all, you send me before the king, then you tell me to hide. Now you're telling me I'm going to this place called Cherith, which I don't know where this is. I'm going somewhere east of the Jordan. I'm going to drink from a brook, and ravens are going to feed me. So look at what Elijah does. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed at the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat. I mean, it's like subway delivery every day with these ravens. Bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Now God is teaching Elijah a major lesson. It's a major lesson that he has to teach everyone that he's going to use in a great way. Whether it's you or me or anyone else who's ever been, we have to learn this lesson of complete dependence. You see, in order for God to do 
great things in your life, in order for God to use you in the way in which he desires to use you, the prerequisite to that is that you and I come to a place where we are fully dependent upon God. But in order for that to happen, that's not something that you just do on your own. That's something that we all need help with. If I listen to you share your testimony with me or you listen to me share my testimony with you, you would hear in that testimony, if you're genuinely converted and saved and born again and used by God, you would hear that in the journey, God taught you how to be dependent solely upon him. This is the way he does it with Elijah. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Right? This is God's MO. This is what God does. God delights in using the least likely people to do the most extraordinary things. He's looking for people who have this gift of weakness. Weakness makes you usable to God, it is the opposite of everything that we are brought up and taught by society to understand. Think of it this way. Weakness is a welcome sign hanging on the door of our lives, inviting God inside. Weakness. You see, we don't think in terms of this morning, if I would have asked you before we started looking at this text... If, if you could ask God for five things, what would those things be? And probably there's a, a good portion of you in here that would think, you know, like, well, I don't know. Solomon had that option proposed to him, and he asked for wisdom. Now, it didn't work out so good in the end, but maybe I would ask for wisdom. That would be a pretty good choice. But who in here would have put at the top of the list weakness? But in reality... If what you desire this morning is for God to do something remarkable in your life, then what you need is weakness. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's doing in Elijah's life. Listen, look at the way in which God does this. He puts him out here by himself, by himself in the middle of nowhere. There's no visitors. Think about it. God... This is the God of the universe. He could have had people come and deliver food to Elijah. He could have done that, but then that would have messed up his system. That would have gave Elijah an opportunity to visit with people. And no, he wanted to isolate him and keep him on his own. He could have sent angels. Angels could have brought food. But he didn't do that. He sent ravens. Now, why would God send ravens? You know, the book of Leviticus says that ravens are unclean. Twice in the Mosaic law, ravens are counted as unclean and to be avoided at all costs. Certainly, you wouldn't eat food that comes out of the mouth of a raven. Why did God send ravens? Because I think it's the Old Testament equivalence of it's the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. That God is a mighty sovereign God who can use even unclean things if he desires 
to accomplish his plan and his purposes in our lives. And so God is preparing Elijah. He's preparing him for a drought specifically in Israel. He just said there's not going to be rain or dew for years. So he puts him somewhere where he has his own water source and his own food because meanwhile, what's going on? As time passes, all the crops are dying. People are going hungry. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. Yet here's Elijah sitting by this brook. Whenever he's thirsty, he has water. Whenever he's hungry, you know, like a drone from Amazon just dropping food out of the sky to us. There's lunch or breakfast. But like manna in the wilderness, Elijah's only given provision for that day. He's given daily provision. And every day he's learning to depend upon God for the next day and for the next day. And for the next day, as he sits in solitude and he meditates and thinks about the Lord and the goodness of God working in his life. Verse 7 says, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Well, the brook dried up because God dried it up. So suddenly, the drought conditions invade Cherith. Now, I imagine that Elijah is sitting there. And as the brook begins to dwindle down, because the Bible doesn't say that it just stopped. So if it stopped in accordance with drought conditions, then that would tell me that it would slowly begin to wean away. And so he's watching the water become less and less and less and less. He's probably chewing his fingernails. He's probably beginning to wonder things that we've all wondered. He's probably saying to himself things like, well, what am I going to do now? I mean... Here you are, God, you lead me out in the middle of nowhere, and now all of a sudden, you take the water away from me? Now, this God who went to such effort to provide everything Elijah needs, just like when he shows up in John 21 on the beach, he's got the fire, the fish, the bread, he's got everything the disciples need to eat, he takes care of every need that Elijah has in the wilderness. Why would a God who goes to that great length allow the brook to dry up? Well, he's preparing Elijah to move to his next assignment. You see, sometimes in your life and sometimes in my life, things are sort of clicking along, right? And they're going the way that we expect them to go or the way that we are accustomed to them going. And then suddenly, the proverbial brook in our life begins to dry up. Suddenly we find ourselves in a place where we didn't ever expect to be. Suddenly we're asking the question, well, what do I do now? Well, God, why would you have done this and now taken it away? I mean, and it's God 
using our circumstances and our situations to move us to the next phase of our assignment. A.W. Tozer, I love this quote, he said, Before God can use a man greatly, he must first hurt him deeply. You don't like that, do you? You know, I never have seen that on any of your walls at your homes. I don't think it's available at Lifeway. Nobody's running around, you know, with that plastered up on something. I haven't seen any bumper stickers. No. Here's the way I would put it. The things that break me are the things that bring me closer to God. It doesn't mean that I enjoy them. It doesn't mean that I like them. But it does mean that if you've walked with God long enough to experience some highs and lows, what you've learned is that those things in life that break you are the very things that bring you closer to God. See, trouble doesn't make you happy, but it sure can make you holy, can it? Oh, yeah. Because when things are too good, we tend to rely upon the flesh and think that, well, we got it. Things are going okay. Things are, I've got things under control. But when the brook dries up, see, when God dries the brook up in your life, what do you do? I mean, you've been there. I've been there. Somebody that you have loved dearly or served greatly or walked with deeply lets you down, betrays you, hurts you, wounds you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a church member. And now there's a void in your life. There once was this place, and now the brook dried up. Maybe you had come, become accustomed to having something or someone in your life that brought you strength or joy or happiness, or whatever the case may be. And so as time went on, you become, became more and more reliant upon this person or this thing or this whatever it is. And then suddenly the brook dries up, and it's gone, and it leaves you sort of standing there with no prospect for the future trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? I mean, come on, God, what's, well, what's happening here? What about when the brook dries up in your vocation or in your finances? Everything's going good until you get the email or the notice that says your position or your department is being eradicated from the company and You'll have to find employment elsewhere. Or the phone rings and your loved one whom you rely and depend on so much now has terminal cancer. What happens in the moments when your brook dries up? Well, what happens is God has a plan to sustain you. That it's not catching God off guard. God is at work in the midst of 
the brook drying up in your life, just like he's at work in the brook drying up in Elijah's life. He's teaching Elijah to depend upon him. He's teaching you and me to depend upon him. He's instructing us in the way in which we need to be challenged and instructed so that we can be used to do the things that he created us to do. See, if we're honest, we, we realize that far too often, far too often on our own, we become convinced that strength and success are proof. They're proof positive that God is using us and that he loves us. And the minute those things begin to dissipate, the minute those things begin to vanish from our lives, we start wondering, well, God, why are you mad at me? Why are you upset with me? What, 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 is, what did I do to deserve this? And then suddenly we get entitled, which is insane, but we do. And we think because we've done this and this and this and this that God owes us, that he ought to, that, that there's a, the result of our actions should yield certain outcomes that we've determined ought to be. And even though that's utterly unbiblical, it makes perfect sense to us. And so if we're not careful, we sit at the, at the dry brook in a pity party, sitting there, waiting for God to send the water back, which he's not going to do. He's sending you to your next assignment. He's moving you on to something more. He's teaching you that your greatest Character trait is weakness. He told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, perfect strength comes in weakness. So therefore, the weaker we are, the more strength we can receive from God. So we need to beware, beware of our strengths because those are the places that we're most likely to forget God. See, so many times we want to hug up to all of our strengths and we want to we carry them close to us and we want to, you know, carry them in a briefcase everywhere we go. We've got those strengths and we want to, we want to you know, just uh, revel in the strengths that we may possess. But listen, we all have strengths and that's good and that's by God's design. But beware, beware of the areas of your life where you feel you are most strong because those are the danger zones. Those are the places where you're going to see your brook dry up. So what did Elijah do? What's his response to this dried up brook? Verse 8 just simply says, Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Now, now here's what strikes me. 
I read this and I think about all the things Elijah didn't do and all the things that I oftentimes see people do in this situation. You're sitting by a brook and the brook dries up. And so we jump up and we start looking for water in our own strength, right? We say, well, there's no water here. I'm going to go find water. And away we go. But Elijah, what he does is he waits on God. He knows that God's the one that put the water there in the first place. So then that tells him that God's the one that took the water away. So he waits for God to lead him to where he wants him to go. He, he understands that maybe not fully at this point, but he's beginning to understand that his dependence, his weakness has is, is now ushered him into a season where it's time for him to move to a greater purpose in God. But he waits he doesn't take matters into his own hands. God says, verse 9, arise. Go to Zarephath. Hmm. Which belongs to Sidon. Whose hometown is that? Jezebel's hometown. I want you to go to Jezebel's place and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. Now, that's not as crazy as a raven, but it's still pretty crazy. There's a drought. People are dying. Who's in the greatest danger of dying would be those who are weakest those who have least amount of power or authority to uh, do the things that they need to do to stay alive, a widow would have been the last person that you would think you would go to in a time of horrible drought to survive. And God says, go to Jezebel's hometown. There's a widow there and she's going to take care of you. I just want us to realize that this little turn in verses 8 and 9 teach us what to do when the brook dries up. To listen. To understand that God is up to something. And it may hurt. And it may be uncomfortable. And the pain is real. And the the insecurity that you feel and all the things that are going on emotionally in the midst of your brook drying up, they're all, they're all hard. But in that moment, acknowledge that the God of the universe is up to something because you wouldn't be where you are unless your heavenly father was doing something. Because he's your dad and he loves you and he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. So wherever you are, he knows. He's there. He's with you. He's got it under control. It may not seem like it. It may not look like it. You may not understand it. You may not know how. But listen, in that moment, your greatest resource is your weakness and your willingness to wait on God. Isaiah 40 says this. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. 
So here's what we should always remember. Now this ought to be on your wall, okay? When your brook dries up, it's not a crisis to God. That'd be a good plaque. Make a great bumper sticker. T-shirt. When your brook dries up, it's not a crisis to God. So let's, let's have a conversation about some takeaways from these nine verses that sort of lay the foundation for where we're going to go in the weeks to come. We're going to look deeply into this man, Elijah. Who was he? What was it like to be him? Not so much about what is the text saying is going on and so on and so forth, but him in particular and his personal relationship with God and how God is honing him and refining him and how the things that God is doing in Elijah are the things he's doing in your life today and my life. So number one, the first takeaway would be this. Greatness in God's economy begins with one small step of faith. I think it's so important to just acknowledge the fact that all of this begins. The greatest prophet who ever lived begins by simply saying yes to the step that's in front of him, which is go to Ahab and tell him that there's not going to be rain. It's the economy of God. It's small things done consistently are what yield tremendous spiritual gains. How many times have you heard me say the Christian life is a series of baby steps? You have to wake up every day and understand that it's about what baby steps do I take today that are molding me and shaping me and sanctifying me into the person that God desires for me to be. Simply because he said yes to go before the king. He had no earthly idea what was ahead of him. Just like you. Because when you feel the prompting of God to take the next step, what stops us in our tracks is our fear of the unknown. Well, we don't know what that's exactly going to look like. We don't know how the things are going to play out. We don't know, you know, what does that mean for me in the long run or personally or socially or financially? Or, and so we, we hold back. Well, Elijah didn't know. He had no idea. Now he had some ideas. And you know what? When you took your first step with God, you had some ideas. And <laughs> how right were you? How'd you do there? Huh? Yeah. I had some idea. Oh, brother. No idea at all. I went from simply knowing that I could not do this on my own. I needed, I needed someone to run into the burning building of my life and rescue me. That's all I knew. I had no inkling 
And you've heard me say a lot of times, had I known, things might have been different. God doesn't tell us. We don't know. There's Elijah standing before Ahab. He thinks he knows who God is. He's saying, the Lord God of Israel, before whom I stand. He's a prophet. He knows the routine. He knows how to, you know, he knows what to say. But it wouldn't be long in Elijah's life before he's asking, what do I know of you who spoke me into motion? I mean, where have I even stood but the shore along your ocean. Don't you see? That's, that's exactly where Elijah goes. Did you notice in the first nine verses, and you'll notice next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that, that God never gives Elijah the next step until he takes the current step. He steps in obedience, and then God tells him the next thing. And he steps in obedience, and then God tells him the next thing. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that's just sort of stuck in spiritual quicksand. And maybe this morning you're realizing, maybe for the first time, that the reason you're not moving spiritually, oh, you pray. You ask God, God, please show me. God, tell me. God, reveal to me. God, do this. God, do that. But he's waiting for you to take the step that he's already told you to take. And he's not going to show you anything about what's beyond that until you're obedient in what he's laid out before you. Now, that's just common sense because if you were, a, if you were an all-knowing, all-wise God, would you speak to someone who wasn't listening to what you already said? Well, no. Take the next step. Greatness in God's economy begins with one step, just one yes to God. Number two, the God who gives water can choose to take it away. See, I think the brook is very instructive. I told you I've been thinking about Elijah for over a year now. I've been preparing for this sermon series for several months. I was telling my wife that I uh, might need to do things Differently in the future. One thing I try to avoid, but you know, it's just the, the flow, maybe the providence of God where, you know, I never want to be in a situation where I'm starting two new series at the same time, which is exactly where we are right now. Wednesday night, we'll start the book of Hebrews. I think I've read six books on Elijah, just on Elijah. All these things, meanwhile, trying to hold on to and, and swim in the ocean of John 21. But I can't shake this image of this brook drying up. 
and how we so often feel that once God gives water, that it's wrong for him to take it away. Once God gives a spouse, once God gives a child, once he gives a ministry, once he gives a vocation, why do we believe that we should always have it? Why do we believe that the gift that God gives us is ours forever? Isn't that up to the giver of the gift? Sure. See, the brook teaches us this lesson. He gives the water, he takes the water away. We sing the song, but we don't want the reality. We love that Job teaches us this, but we don't want to learn it. See, in God's agenda, his purposes in our life are always hidden from us in the moment. Why? Because that's why it takes faith. If you knew everything that was going to happen, it wouldn't require any faith for you to walk. The reason that we walk by faith and not by sight is because we don't know. We don't know what God's going to do tomorrow. We don't know how God's going to do it. We don't know how he's going to use the things in our life. But we do know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we do know that a sovereign good God who gives can take away. And we should be grateful that he ever gave at all. Instead of convincing ourselves that we're somehow entitled for life to retain his good gift. And why is it that when the brook dries up in our life, we immediately feel that God has somehow abandoned us? You see, there was a time, let's think about this for a second. There was a time in Elijah's life where there wasn't a brook, where he didn't know what Cherith was or where it was. He never heard of it. And he was going through life, and he thought that what he knew was sufficient or fine or whatever he thought at the time. I don't know, and it doesn't matter. But the point is, God's the one that brought the reality of a brook that supplies water daily for you and your needs into his life. See, the only reason why I know the joy of being married is because God brought marriage into my life. The only reason why I know the, the joy of walking in the Spirit is because God brought the joy of walking in the Spirit into my life. The only reason why I know the joy of ministry is because God gave me the joy of ministry. God's the giver of all these gifts. The only reason why I know the joy of fatherhood is because God gave me the joy of children. He's the giver of all the gifts. He's the one. And so let's be careful when the brook dries up about suddenly coming to this conclusion that God is displeased or that he's distant or that he's away from us or that all suddenly all that he said to us, all that we've claimed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt is true, suddenly vanishes in the midst of our suffering. When you feel forgotten, Remind yourself of passages like Isaiah 49 where the scripture says, See, Zion, the Lord's people said, The Lord has forsaken me. That's what they're shouting. My God has forgotten me. See, my brook's dried up. 
God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. So when the brook dries up, don't panic. Rest in the reality that I'm your ever-present father. And I have a bigger plan that you, don't, you can't see right now. Just embrace your weakness and your dependence upon him. Number three, God's direction always includes his provision. See, when God directs us to do something, once we've waited and we hear from the Lord what Elijah teaches us, what the Scripture confirms a thousand times over, is that God provides. When he directs, he provides. He told him to go to the brook. When he gets there, what does he find? Everything that he needs. Not only does he find safety from people who are trying to kill him, but he provides all of his physical needs are met, his spiritual needs are met. Everything that he needs is there. He's arranged everything in advance. Isn't that the principle Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what will happen? All these other things will be added unto you, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Yes, his direction includes his provision. Number four. When the brook dries up, God's not punishing me for failure. He's pruning me for fruitfulness. He's not punishing us for failure. We know the character and nature of God is not punitive against his people. He's pruning us for fruitfulness. A drying brook is a sign of God's pleasure. See, what that brook drying up means to Elijah is that he's completed what it needed to be completed. And it was, a, it was a good thing. It was a vote of confidence. It was an exciting thing that in God's agenda, in God's economy, it's time to move on to the, to the next thing. But so oftentimes we don't see it that way. We see it the way we want to see it. We don't realize that it, it's not punishment. It was for his protection. It was for his provision. But it was also for his preparation. And that came to an end. And now it's time to move to the next thing that God has. You see, the, the Christian life is, an, is a never-ending sequence of yes, Lord, right? That's what it is. It's yes, Lord. And yes, Lord. And yes, Lord. That's what it is. And so you say to yourself, well, when does it end? Well, how far do you want to go? You see, at the moment of salvation, you have unlimited potential in Christ. The Bible says that everything that pertains to life and godliness has been granted to you in that moment. So how much of it do you want? Well, how many yeses are you willing to say? With every yes, God takes you to a greater and greater place in him that brook drying up 
is just spectacular. It's God saying, son, it's time for something new. It's time for me to stretch you in a new way. Time for me to teach you some new things. Time for me to show you how to use some of the things that you've learned. It's just exciting to see that. See, sometimes hard times don't mean you're messing up. They mean you're growing up. See, sometimes your teenager comes home, especially your middle school student. They come home and they're like, Mom, Dad, I'm having a hard time. I remember that season with my first two and how challenging it was as they were learning to embrace who they were going to be and form their identities and And so oftentimes, it wasn't anything about messing up. It was just about growing up. It's about God teaching them to rely upon him, that they couldn't walk in my faith or their mom's faith. They had to have their own faith. He's doing the same thing in your life and the same thing in my life. You see, this morning, either you don't know that you're in a, you don't know God and you're in a burning building and you need someone to rescue you, or you do know God, And you've been commissioned. Commissioned to rescue people who are in burning buildings. Now what people around you are in buildings that are on fire? Because wherever a child of God is, there's a building on fire nearby. Because that's our commission. See, that would have been a good place for an amen right there. It's your commission. He didn't commission you to do something and not provide the the proximity and the potential for you to do it. Oh, no. Who's on fire around you? Who's, who's, Whose house is burning up in your neighborhood? Who's, who's on fire that you work with? Who in your family's on fire? Who around you? And I know what you're thinking. Pastor, I mean, I get that. It sounds great. But, I mean, I I don't even know where to start. I mean, my brook's dried up. I'm afraid to take a step. I don't feel equipped. I don't feel like I, I just don't feel like I'm hero material well good you're in the perfect posture then to move which would explain why your brook is dried up in the first place right because God's greatest instruments are not superhuman they're just ordinary people filled with weakness who are dependent upon him So all these people are running around worshiping Baal. Hoping that it would lead to a great harvest. And God comes along and says, 
I'm the God of the Bible and I help those who are weak. I'm drawn to the underdog. The world is filled with false gods that edify the flesh and build up the strong. They grant heaven to those who are moral superstars or who accomplish and achieve great things. They're rewarded with earthly success, but not the God of the Bible. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He shows up on the scene, weak and pitiful, a baby, born in a manger, not in a white robe, not with a lot of fanfare. Mm -mm. We need to be reminded we don't get to heaven by accomplishing or doing enough moral deeds to get credit. When Kristen read from Ephesians 2, you see that smile on her face when she said, we're his poema, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Yeah, he loves you. He loves you. And he's saying, take the next step. So if you're in a burning building this morning, maybe you walked in here needing help, call out to him. Call out to him today. And for all of us, we need to remember that greatness in the kingdom of God is one simple baby step of faith. Just say yes to whatever's in front of you today, whatever that is. By faith, knowing. You don't know where this is going to lead you or what this is going to look like, but to whom shall you go? For only he has the words of eternal life. 